One of the great public servants in the history of England was a man by the name of William Gladstone. He served England faithfully for uh, half of the 19th century. In fact, he was the four-time prime minister of England. Four times, imagine that. William Gladstone was also known as a faithful and committed follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he attended church regularly and taught Sunday school all throughout his adult life, even as he served England as their prime minister. Shortly before Gladstone died, he gave a speech in which he shared about an incident when a young man who was an admirer of his came to him and was seeking counsel and guidance for his life. Gladstone recounted this conversation, and he shared how this young man came, and Gladstone asked him, well, tell me, sir, what do you hope to do when you graduate from college? This young man replied to the prime minister and, and said, well, sir, I hope to attend law school, just as you did. And Gladstone replied, well, that's a noble goal. What then? Well, I, I hope to serve faithfully and practice law and make a good name for myself, defending the poor and the outcasts of society, just as you did, sir. And Gladstone replied, that's a noble purpose. Then what? The young man then said, well, one day I hope to stand for parliament and serve the people, even as you did. That's a terrific goal, young man. What then? Well, sir, if, if God is willing, one day maybe I too can serve as Prime Minister of England and serve with the same dedication and vision and integrity that you displayed to the country. Gladstone replied, that's a noble goal, young man. What then? The young man then said, well, I hope to retire with honors and write my memoirs even as you're presently doing so that others might learn from my mistakes and my triumphs. Gladstone says, all of that is very noble. And then what? The young man replied, well, sir, I suppose then I'll die. And Gladstone says, you're correct, sir. What then? And the young man said, well, I haven't thought much about it. Gladstone replied to this young man, I have only one word of advice for you this morning. Go home, read your Bible. And think about eternity. Think about eternity. That's some good advice that Gladstone gave this young man. Good advice for all of us to consider. Think about eternity. Friends, is there any more significant topic than we could reflect on than the reality of our eternal destinies? Life is short. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. What happens after we die? These are questions of great consequence, great significance. Questions that all of us should spend time reflecting on. This has been one of the hopes and prayers I've had for our series together over the, the last six weeks as we're moving into the seventh and eighth week of our series on the end times. I've been praying that God would use this series to inspire each of us to think very clearly about eternity. And to help us think about eternity, we've been looking at God's prophetic word. We've been looking at the promises that God has given us in his word about the things that are going to take place at the end of time. God's given us these promises for tomorrow so that we might put our hope in him today. 
That's the point of God's prophetic word. So that we might know what he's told us is, is to come for the sake of trusting in him, putting our hope in him, and then walking and living faithfully with him. And so that's been our task in this series, looking at the end times. I want us to spend some time reviewing where we've been before we move into our next major theme in our study of the end times this morning. As you recall, over the past six weeks, we've, we've talked about God's prophetic timeline. What he says are the events that are going to unfold in the future. We've talked about how today we are currently living in what is known as the church age. This is the period of time between Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his return for the church in that great event called the rapture, our blessed hope, that day that we look forward to, that Jesus promised us is coming, that promise that we've seen throughout Scripture is, is abundantly clear. God is going to rapture his church out of this world prior to a seven-year period of literal hell on earth, the tribulation, where the Antichrist is going to rule and reign and deceive the nations, and God is going to unleash his judgment upon this world. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's going to be a terrible time, a seven-year period of judgment and cataclysm in this world. But friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, as we've so often talked about, we need not fear that time of tribulation because we're not going to be here for it. Jesus promises he's going to deliver his church. He's going to snatch us away. We're going to be caught up in the air, meeting Jesus in the clouds, and he's going to take us into his presence. And what are we going to be doing as the church during that tribulation period? We're going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus is going to reward us for the things that we did on his behalf with the time that we had in this world. We're going to be rewarded by Jesus Christ, and then we're going to experience that great event, the marriage supper of the Lamb together. We're going to celebrate the union of Christ and his church. And all this is going to take place in God's paradise while this earth is going through this period of seven years known as the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus is going to return riding on a white horse followed by the armies of heaven, and he is going to vanquish the Antichrist. He's going to throw the false prophet and the Antichrist into the lake of fire. He's going to lock Satan up in the pit of Hades for a thousand years. And as Pastor Rick did such a great job sharing with us last week, Jesus Christ then is going to establish his millennial kingdom in this world. He will rule and reign over this world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And it will be the greatest period of peace and prosperity this world has known since the time of Eden. A thousand years of Jesus reigning over the nations. At the end of that thousand years, Satan is going to be released from the pit. He's going to deceive the nations once more. And once again, Jesus is going to speak a word and vanquish Satan and all of his adversaries once and for all time. And that leads us to where we find ourselves today now, looking at the great white throne judgment. At the end of the millennium, after Jesus has defeated Satan and his enemies, there will be one final judgment over this world. A judgment known as the great white throne judgment. Today we're going to look at this judgment. It is one of the most sobering events recorded in all of scripture. It's going to be the final and most consequential judgment of God upon this fallen sinful world and all who've lived in rebellion against him. 
This judgment is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This is part of the Apostle John's vision of the end times that God gave John so that the church might know what is going to take place. And we need to be aware about what God has promised in this final consequential judgment for the world. Let's take a look at Revelations 20, 11 through 15 together. Then I want to come back and share some reflections on what John reveals to us here in this passage. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What an incredible vision here John shares with us in this culminating episode of judgment. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Why is this throne described as the great white throne? Well, friends, the word great here in reference to this, this throne, this vision that John sees, the, the term great speaks of the majesty, not of the throne, but of the one who sits upon the throne. When this day of judgment comes, friends, nobody is going to mistake who's in charge. The one seated on the throne will be recognized as sovereign over all. Why is this throne and the one who sits upon it described as white great and white well friends the term white speaks of the holiness of the throne and the one who sits upon this throne not only is this person going to be recognized as sovereign overall but he's going to be seen as holy righteous untarnished by sin and who is this one who's going to be seated on the throne Friends, did you notice John doesn't tell us here in our passage? Who is the one seated on the throne? Friends, when this judgment takes place, there's going to be no mistaking who this sovereign, holy one is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? We know that from other scripture references like John chapter 5, verse 22, where Jesus tells us that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus is the one who's going to judge the world one day at the great white throne judgment. The apostle Paul in his speech to the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17 verse 31, Paul tells the philosophers in Athens that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who's Paul speaking of here, friends? We know this is Jesus Christ, the man that God has appointed to judge the world, giving proof of this by raising him from the dead. 
Paul goes on and he writes to the church in Philippi in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that on this day, the day of judgment, the great white throne judgment, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, Jesus Christ is the judge who will be seated on this great white throne. Let me ask you this morning, friends. Are you rejecting Jesus Christ today? Are you living your life in rebellion against Jesus Christ today? Friends, make no mistake about it. You are going to kneel before him one day. And you're going to face him as your judge. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready? What are you going to say to Jesus? Now what's going to take place at this final judgment? Well, let's break down this morning what Scripture tells us about this great and terrible day of the Lord. The first thing we need to recognize is that the great white throne judgment is going to be a definitive judgment. A definitive judgment. This means it's going to be a once and for all time judgment. The final judgment of God upon this fallen sinful world. And in our passage today, we see that at this great white throne judgment, there's actually going to be three judgments that take place. Three judgments that take place. What are these three judgments? Number one, we see here right away in verse 11 that the earth and sky are going to be judged. John tells us in his vision, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. The earth and sky is going to flee from the presence of the righteous judge, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to judge the earth and the sky. Why? Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, even the earth today groans under the weight of the curse of sin. Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole world groans waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And Jesus is going to judge the earth and the sky because of its fallen sinful nature. Jesus is going to judge this world. We're going to see next week, after Jesus judges this present earth and sky, he's going to create new heavens. He's going to create a new earth. It's incredible. Friends, don't miss next week when we talk about the eternal realities that God has promised that we're going to live in, the new heavens and the new earth. But this present earth and sky are going to be judged. What's going to take place at this judgment? God is going to dissolve this world in his righteous holy fire. Did you know that, friends? That's how the earth is going to end. In God's righteous, holy fire. He's going to dissolve it all. Friends, a lot of people in our world today are worried about climate change. I've, I've seen reports, you know, the world's going to end in 12 years, according to some people. Friends, climate change is not going to bring this world to an end. Jesus Christ is going to bring this world to the end in his righteous, holy fire, his judgment. The apostle Peter tells us what's going to take place at this judgment when the earth and sky flee from the presence of the great white throne. 2 Peter 3, 7 through 13 tells us, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, the great white throne judgment, and destruction of the ungodly. 
But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which the righteous shall dwell. Friends, God is going to judge this world. At the great white throne judgment, the heavens and the earth are going to flee from his presence. They're going to be burned up in the holy fire of God. They're going to be dissolved. And as we talk about next week, God is going to create for us a new heaven and a new earth. The second judgment that's going to take place at the great white throne judgment John tells us the dead are going to be judged. Verses 12 and 13, the dead will be judged. Hebrews 9, 27 says that it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Friends, the dead will all stand before the great white throne of judgment. Not reincarnation, not spiritual evolution, not nothingness. You're going to die And if you die apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you are going to stand before the great white throne of judgment. John says the dead are going to stand before this throne. Who are the dead? These are all who physically died outside of a right relationship with God. These are the physically dead that God is going to raise to life on this final day of judgment. They're not only the physically dead, but they're the spiritually dead because they missed out on a saving relationship with their creator. The dead are spiritually dead for all of eternity from this point forward. John says that these people will include the great and small. Understand this, friends. Your standing, your wealth, your privilege, none of that is going to matter. On this final day of judgment, none of it matters without Jesus. John says that the sea will give up its dead. Death and Hades will give up its dead. In other words, all the unsaved throughout all of history are going to be resurrected to stand before the great white throne of judgment. Even those who died at sea, even those whose bodies were tossed over the side of these ships to be buried at sea. They're going to be resurrected out of the sea to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment. We'll talk more about the judgment of the dead in a moment. But the third judgment that we see here in our passage this morning, death and Hades will be judged. Verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Why is death and Hades going to be thrown into the lake of fire? Well, first and foremost, Hades is the place of the unsaved dead. Where do unsaved people go before this final great white throne judgment? They go to Hades. It's the place of the dead. Believers don't go to Hades. Believers go to paradise to be in the presence of the Lord. But the unsaved dead go to Hades. But at this final judgment, 
John tells us that death and Hades are going to be judged. Why are death and Hades going to be judged once and for all time? Because, friends, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be no more death. There's going to be no more mourning. There's going to be no more crying. Some of you are here this morning, and you yourselves are grieving the loss of a loved one recently. Tomorrow, two of my best friends are going to be mourning the loss of their mother who recently passed away. You know what, friends? A day is coming when we're no longer, well, where we will no longer mourn death because death is going to be once and for all destroyed. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 26, that death is actually the last enemy to be defeated. Isn't that interesting? Paul says death is the final enemy to be defeated. And here in Revelations chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment, what do we see? We see the earth and sky are judged. We see the dead are judged. And what's last? Death and Hades. Judged forever, thrown into the lake of fire. And there will never again, from this day forward, be any death. What a great hope we have promised to us here in this great white throne judgment. And again, friends, this is going to be a definitive judgment. A once and for all time judgment. Friends, understand there is going to be no appealing the judgment of this day. The earth and sky are going to be judged definitively. The dead are going to be judged definitively. Death and Hades are going to be judged definitively. The second thing we see in our passage this morning is that this great white throne judgment is going to be a just judgment. It's going to be a just judgment. John here in his vision of the great white throne judgment tells us that books are going to be opened. Jesus is going to have books opened before him at this great white throne. And two times here in our passage, we're told that the dead are going to be judged according to what they had done. Now, friends, what's recorded here in these books that John sees? What's recorded in these books? Friends, everything that the unsaved dead have ever done will be recorded in these books books that will be opened, books that will be read. And all of the acts of the unsaved dead will be laid bare for all to see. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us that this is what's going to take place. In Luke chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 and 14 tells us, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friends, the dead will stand in judgment before Jesus Christ. And in his books, all of their acts, all of their deeds, all of their thoughts will be exposed and laid bare for all to see. Friends, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine? All your secret hidden thoughts, all your acts and deeds, everything will be exposed. The dead are going to be seen for who they truly are. And friends, that's a scary thing. Because when we stand before the righteous, holy judge of all creation, and he exposes our lives for all to see, the unsaved dead are exposed for all to see, what's going to be made very clear? What's going to be made very clear is the way God sees us in our sin. He describes it for us in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Here God tells the Apostle Paul, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no one righteous. No, not one, God tells us. Friends, this is going to be made obvious when we stand when the unsaved dead stand before the great white throne judgment. I always find it fascinating when I talk to non-Christians and I ask them if they think they're going to be in heaven one day. You know, the majority of people you ask in our country, if you, if you ask them, are you going to be in heaven one day? Most people will say, yeah, I'll be there. And you ask them, why? Why do you think you'll be in heaven one day? Well, you know, I'm basically a good person. You ever heard somebody say something like that? You know, I'm basically a good person. That's not what God says. God says there is no one righteous. Not one. Good luck if that's your argument. See, the mistake that most people make in our world today is they think that God grades on a curve. A lot of people think that, that their standing before God is going to be sort of based on like, like a, a baseball batting average. You know, it's baseball season right now, right? And some of you are following the twins and we're, we're following their batting averages, right? And, and in baseball, you know that if somebody's batting like 200 or 300, I mean, that's a pretty decent batting average. I mean, friends, can you imagine having a job where literally 30% of the time you do your job and that's considered good? Batting 300, that's what that means. Like 30% of the time you do your job well and you're praised for it. And a lot of people look at our standing before God like batting averages. And they think, well, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm basically good. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of batting like 300 or so. You know, I'm not perfect, but I mean, really, who is, right? I'm certainly better than this guy. I mean, he's like a 200 over here. You know, so again, I'm doing pretty good. And when I stand before God, you know, I mean, that's all that matters. But friends, that's not all that matters. Because God's standard is his holiness. God's batting a thousand. And he's the standard, friends. When it comes to getting into heaven, God's the standard. And when the dead stand before the great white throne in judgment, there won't be any debating whether God's justice is fair or not. There's not going to be any debate. Oh, that's not fair. 
You're going to cast me into the lake of fire? That's not fair. I was basically a good person. Friends, that that argument is going to be so pathetic when we stand before the perfect, holy, righteous Son of God. No one's going to dare make that argument because our sin is going to be obvious to all as we stand in the presence of a holy God. Friends, let me ask you this morning. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're watching online this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you haven't put your hope or trust in him, let me ask you, do you still think you're good enough? You think you're going to stand before a righteous, holy God and say, well, I was basically a good person. Good luck with that. John tells us that the dead are going to be judged according to what they had done, according to the record of their lives written in his books. And there's not going to be a single person that can live up to God's righteous standard. And then John tells us in our passage this morning, as the dead stand before Jesus, he's going to open another book. This is the book of life. And he's going to look and see if their names are written in that book of life. And friends, for those standing before Jesus on that day, they're already going to know the answer as they tremble before the Holy One of God. Their names are missing. They're not there. And for everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life, they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. For all eternity. This is hell, friends, the lake of fire. It's the definitive judgment of the unsaved dead who did not put their trust in Jesus Christ. They will be thrown in hell for eternity. What is hell going to be like? Jesus Christ gives us a vivid picture of it in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 26. Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who was feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, in hell, the holding place for the dead before hell, the preview of hell. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things And Lazarus, in the like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Friends, what is hell going to be like? Jesus tells us here four things. It's going to be a place of torment, It's going to be a place of thirst. It's going to be a place of thought where we're going to remember all of our deeds in this world and we're going to remember all of the missed opportunities and all of the lost opportunities to respond to the gospel. 
There are going to be people who hear this message this morning or watch it online, and in eternity, you're going to think back and remember this moment, and you're going to think, I missed my chance for all eternity. And you're going to be trapped because an impassable chasm has been set between the unsaved dead and those who will be forever in the presence of God. What a horrible thing. Imagine, friends, this rich man that Jesus shares about in this story has now been in this state for 2,000 years. And he's going to be there for a thousand more during the millennium. And then he's going to be resurrected and he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne of judgment. And he knows in that moment what he's going to experience for all of eternity as he's cast into the lake of fire. How horrible. People sometimes ask me, well, Pastor Jason, how bad is hell? Really? How bad is it? Friends, you need to understand this morning, hell is so bad that it costs the Son of God his very life to keep you from going there. Don't miss out on Jesus, friends. Don't miss out on his gift of amazing grace. This leads me to point number three this morning. The great white throne judgment is an avoidable judgment. There's a way of escape. As many of you know, our secular culture this past week began their month-long celebration of the LGBTQ movement known as Pride Month. This is our secular world's celebration of virtually all forms of sexual confusion and rebellion at odds with God's will for men and women. And the symbol of this misguided celebration has come to be the rainbow. This past Tuesday, my kids went to school, and my daughter texted me from school, Dad, there's all kinds of kids wearing rainbow shirts all over school today, celebrating Pride Month. I texted her back. I said, just pray for them. Pray, because they've been deceived. But friends, what our secular culture fails to recognize is where the symbol of the rainbow came from and what it truly means. See, don't ever forget, the rainbow is really God's symbol. Young people here today, don't ever forget that. The rainbow is God's symbol. It's a symbol that goes back to Genesis chapter 9. It's a symbol that was instituted by God to remind men and women of his holiness, of our rebellion against him, of his just judgment against our sin and ultimately of his amazing grace that's available to all who trust in him by faith. And friends, when I see the rainbow today plastered on virtually every corner of the public square, I can't help but mourn for the state of our world. I mourn because our secular culture has chosen a symbol celebrating their pride in rebellion against God, a symbol that's truly representative of God's hatred for our sin. But at the same time, when I see the rainbow flag waving over pride parades, it also reminds me that there is hope. 
There's hope for all of these men and women who have been swept up by the flood of moral confusion of our secular culture. There's hope because the rainbow reminds us that God has made a way. God has made a way. Friends, make no mistake about it, a day of judgment is coming for many in this world. But it's a judgment that's avoidable through the free gift of salvation offered to each of us in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. What does the gospel mean? The gospel means good news. What is the good news for unsaved people this morning? The good news is the good news found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is the good news? It's found in Romans 8, 1 through 2. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Friends, what is the good news? It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What is the good news? It's found in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, God has made a way. He's made a way through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And let me ask you this morning, have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you have the assurance of your salvation? When the great white throne judgment takes place, will you be standing behind the shelter of the throne? Or will you be trembling before it in judgment? See, what you do with Jesus makes all the difference. It's ultimately all that matters. Many of you are familiar with the story of the Titanic tragedy. The sink of the Titanic took place on April 15, 1912. Over 1,500 people died. What you may not be familiar with is the story of one of the passengers on the Titanic, a man by the name of John Harper. John Harper came aboard the Titanic on, Titanic on April 10th, 1912. He had a second-class ticket. As he boarded, he came aboard with only one companion. It was his six-year-old daughter, Nan. See, John Harper was a widower, and they were headed for a new life in America. We don't know how John spent his first four days on the Titanic but from the moment that the iceberg struck the ship until 2.20 a.m. of the 15th when the ship slowly slipped beneath the waves, we know of at least three things that happened. First, we know that Mr. Harper passed little Nan to a deck officer asking that she be placed on a lifeboat so she might be rescued. Nan survived and ended up living to the age of 80. She died in 1986. Isn't that amazing? Second thing we know that took place is Mr. Harper gave his life jacket to a fellow passenger so that he might be saved. Thirdly, John Harper treaded water 
treaded water as long as he could in the dark, freezing waters of the Atlantic. And as he treaded water, he pleaded with his fellow passengers to put their trust in Jesus Christ. How do we know all of this? We know all this because a few short weeks later, a man stood up in a church in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And he said, I was John Harper's last convert. You know, it's interesting, when the Titanic set sail, there were three classes of passengers. First, second, and third. When the Titanic sank, friends, there were only two. Saved and lost. Friends, this ship we call the world is quickly sinking. And when it does, and we all stand before God, there's only going to be two classes of passengers, saved and lost. Who do you know who still needs rescue? Who's going to be there, John Harper? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning that you've given us about what's going to take place on this final definitive day of judgment. And we thank you most of all that you have made a way for us to be saved through the amazing grace of your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to bring us back into a right relationship with you, our creator. Lord, I pray that nobody here this morning and nobody watching online would miss out on the good news, the free gift of salvation that you've offered us in your son. And when we put our trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, that we can be washed and cleansed and forgiven of our sins. We can be made right with you, our Creator God, and we can know with assurance that we will not face the great white throne in judgment, but we'll be standing in the shelter of the throne, not trembling before it. Jesus, we thank you for your amazing grace, and I pray, God, that this knowledge of what's going to take place at the end of time might inspire each of us to live more seriously, more faithfully, more dedicated to the cause of taking the good news of Jesus to this lost and dying world that so desperately needs to know that there is a way of hope. Help us be faithful in that task, God. Help us to reach out in love to those lost people in our lives sharing the good news of Jesus with them. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. If any of you would like prayer, some of our elders and Stephen ministers will be here at the front of the sanctuary. We would love to pray with you. Uh, if any of you would like to greet our guest worship leader this morning, Jonathan, he'll be around. Uh, we'd love to say hi to you as well. Our benediction comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a blessed week, everyone. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. 
I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.